For today, I felt like God just wanted me to emphasize a well-known area of Scripture from the Old Testament story that you probably know very well. And I want to speak to you about claiming your divine inheritance. There's an interesting quote that I found from Paul Harvey that says this, A blind man's world is bound by the limits of his touch. An ignorant man's world is bound by the limits of his knowledge. A great man's world is bound only by the limits of of his vision. Do you know how important it is to know what God has for you? What is a part of your rightful inheritance as a child of God? Many Christians walk in ignorance of what their inheritance actually is. Hosea in the Old Testament prophesies and says that my people, God's people, are destroyed. Can you say destroyed? Destroyed because of what? A lack It didn't say a lack of money. Didn't say a lack of anything except one thing, a lack of knowledge. If you don't know what God has for you, you can't enjoy it and enter into it. A beautiful scripture that we that we love to always be refreshed on is Ephesians chapter one and verse three that says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I don't know about you, but that says to me, we are wealthy in Christ. We have an inheritance. The Bible says that we are heirs of God, every one of you. You're an heir of God. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And you have an inheritance. And it's bigger than you can imagine. And the problem is that our lack of knowledge about that inheritance is many times a barrier. In addition to that, there's some other barriers we're going to talk about today. But I want to speak to you about how important it is that we lay hold of our inheritance and whatever we need to do to eliminate obstacles and barriers let's do that i don't expect for you to read the entire text with me this morning but i do want to provide it for you i'm going to jump around a little bit i'm going to tell you a little bit of the story and then just read a couple of the passages it's taken from numbers chapter 13 and then actually goes into numbers chapter 14 a little bit so i'm just going to set up the story for you a little bit and then and then read certain verses of scripture You probably remember that the children of Israel released through divine miracles from their bondage in Egypt. They went through the Red Seas, uh, delivered from the Red Sea miraculously, entering into the wilderness. And the design was that they would go through the wilderness for a short period of time, God being their guide, using Moses to lead them through. And God supernaturally provided all their needs. He gave them manna to eat. He gave them water from a, a rock that actually moved around and followed them all through the wilderness. Can you imagine? And there was a certain location called Kadesh Barnea, that when they arrived at that location, the idea was from Kadesh, they were to enter right on into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Canaan was their divine inheritance. It was real estate that was promised to the people of God. But interestingly enough, when they were released from bondage, God said to them, you have to go and possess your possession. Now you would think if you already have a possession, you wouldn't have to possess it. 
This is like having the title deed to something, but not yet occupying it, not yet really owning it and enjoying the benefits of it. And so with this promise of going into the promised land, we find in Numbers chapter 13, they had already spent a certain number of months wandering around the wilderness, God providing for them, and uh, they came to this certain point, and this is what happened. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is what he said. Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From every tribe, send one of its leaders. And then the scripture goes on to give us all the names and all the details of all of those who were sent out. And so how many spies did that mean that they were going into the land? Very good. Y'all all got an A for today. That's right. Twelve tribes. One, uh, twelve tribes, twelve spies. And it gave us the names of those that Moses sent to explore the land. Goes in verse 17, and it says, When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like. See whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good land or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or are they fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or is it poor? Are there trees there or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. I want to see some evidence. So he's sending them out on a reconnaissance mission to evaluate and to assess this piece of real estate that was already theirs. Can you imagine? You already have the title deed, and now you send in a real estate appraiser to go in and to say, this is what's going on, here's the values, here's all, the, all that you can know about the property, and here's even some evidence to show you what it's like. Never having seen it, Moses himself, never having seen it, most of the people of Israel, other than these 12 men, never saw it physically, but they knew that God had given to them this land. It was a land that was promised to be flowing with blessing a land of milk and honey a land of prosperity a land of blessing but the condition was they had to go into the land and actually take it for themselves verse 21 says and so they went up and they explored the land from the desert of zin as far as Rehob, all the way towards labo hamath they went up to the negev and they came to hebron and where the descendants of Anak lived. By the way, the descendants of Anak were a weird group of people. Weird only because they were huge. Abnormally large, we simply call them giants. Can you imagine these eight foot, many have said that they're somewhere between seven and nine foot tall weird people i won't go into all the theories of what their history possibly could have been but they were a little abnormal but the point was they were foreboding and so they go in and they see the descendants of anak living there when they reached the valley of Eschol. They cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between them. 
How many of y'all enjoy grapes? Enjoy grapes? Go to the store, buy some nice fresh grapes from Kroger or something like that. How many of you have ever had to, had instead of using the bag, how many of you ever had to take a pole, tie the grapes onto a pole, and have your kids hold that pole and carry it to your car to find out how you're going to get it home? Have any of you ever bought grapes like that? I don't think so. But that was exactly what happened here at Kadesh Barney. They went in, they brought back evidence, and here was this beautiful, beautiful example of God's blessing. There was a single cluster of grape, the Bible says. And two of them carried it on a pole. And they also brought pomegranates and figs. And then it says at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the lands. 40 days, 12 men evaluating and exploring this promised land came back to give a report to Moses. Verse 26, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them in the whole assembly and they showed them that here it is. Look, look how great it is. Here's the fruit of the lamb. And they gave Moses this account. Now you have to listen very carefully to this account. Here's what they said. Quote, we went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites. Let's just say the ites. Just in general. The ites were living there. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and he said, listen. He said, we should go up and take possession of the land. We certainly can do it. But, once again, verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. How many of you know that bad reports spread like cancer? Quicker than you can imagine, a bad re- In fact, a bad report will spread quicker than a good report. Have you ever noticed that? And then they said, the land we explored is good, but it devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. And we seemed, listen carefully, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. Yeah, how did they know that? That's exactly what I've often thought, Jezreel. All right, here's how I want to apply this story today. What is your promised land? May I suggest to you today that the promised land of Israel, Canaan, that they are going into this piece of real estate that they have been promised and had the title deed for, let's think of that promised land as being your and my divine inheritance. Everything, the the big picture view of everything that God has for you and your life and your future. If you want to, let's call it your destiny. If you want to, let's call it your preferred or promised future. Some of you have hold of things that you know that God has told you, that God wants you to do, that he has for you, promises that he's made for you, but you have not yet enjoyed the benefits of it. Am I right?
So let's think of the promised land, this land that they're going in to evaluate and appraise. Let's think of that as your inheritance and mine. We all know the famous scripture from Jeremiah 29, 11. Can you say it with me? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to what? Prosper you and not to what? Harm you, but plans to what? Give you hope and a future. How many of you would like some of that? Raise your hand. Some of you don't even know where you're at right now. All right. There's three questions as we look through this that I'd like for you to consider. All right. Number one, what do you see in this story? What do you see? What you see determines how you respond to it. Number two, you have to ask yourself the question, well, what is my attitude? What do I see out in front of me? Then what is my attitude towards it? And then number three, where are you going? If you're headed the wrong direction, the promised inheritance may be irrelevant to you. You're on the wrong track, headed the wrong direction. So these are three important questions for you to consider. And before we get to these attitudes that I want to talk about, let me just tell you a few things about these ites. Okay, a couple things. These are giants, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the giants, but we know that they were there, and they were the very... They were kind of the focus of the report that came back. Am I right? So here's what notes that I made. Can I just read you my notes? I say this. Giants are three things. Number one, a giant is anything that stands between you and God's plan for your life. It's anything that stands between you and God's plan for your life. Number two, a giant is anything that seems bigger than you and your desire to serve God. Anything that seems bigger than you. And your desires to serve God. Number three, a giant is that which is stronger than us and cannot be faced alone. How many of you think that you may have some giants that are guarding your inheritance? Any of you think that? Most of us have giants in our life. And here's what I want you to remember about giants. Giants don't just go away. They will not just dissipate. They will not be morphed into some miniature version in the future. Giants are there, and they're real, and they're there to stay, and they have to be faced and overcome. Giants don't just go away. Are you with me? Now, may I suggest to you here five attitudes? And I know you're thinking there's no way you're going to get five attitudes covered here in, in 15 minutes, but I, I think I'm going to come close, all right? I want to share with you five attitudes that I consider to be blocking attitudes. These are things that are going to prevent you obstacles from getting in there and actually laying hold of and enjoying your inheritance. We have the inheritance. The giants are guarding it from you. How do we of how do we uh, claim our inheritance and not miss it as we actually saw the result of this story to press ahead? What happened? It wasn't good, was it? Did the, did the children of Israel go in immediately and lay hold of it? No, no, no. They wandered for 38 and a half more years. That's not good. So the negative report, the bad report that came back fueled some attitudes in the people that then prevented them from inheriting what God had for them. So let's cover those five attitudes. Number one. Number one is an attitude of doubt. These are very simple. Not anything that some of you haven't considered. 
but I want you just to address them with me today. An attitude of doubt. Doubt is simply when someone questions what God has said. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2 tells us about the Israelites here, and it's describing their inability to claim their promised inheritance. And it says that the problem was that they failed to mix the promises with faith. They failed to mix God's word with faith. You say, well, I've got God's word. Having God's word is not enough. You have to mix your faith with God's word in order to experience the result. Are you hearing me? And there we see that the Israelites, the reason they couldn't go in and enjoy this and had to wait for the next generation is because they failed to mix it with faith. Doubt defeats faith. Doubt is when you say, well, I'm not real sure about that. I'm not sure if God has said that. Has God really said that? Is that what really God means? We know that it's impossible to please God unless we walk in faith. And doubt undermines faith. The scripture tells us in James chapter 1, it describes someone that doubts. And it says that someone who doubts is like someone who is tossed back and forth. And actually describes them as being a double-minded person. A double-minded person. In the original language, it's interesting, it's duosuke, which means a double psyche. Or two souls. Can you imagine being flipped back and forth, if you will, being spiritually schizophrenic, being double-minded about what God wants for you and your inheritance. If you approach the things of God and the promises of God with doubt in your heart, you're always succumbing to the virus of doubt. You will find yourself never being able to go in and possess your inheritance. Doubt will undermine it every time. I remember not too long ago, a few years ago, it was actually back in, I think, 2011, I was full-time at Regent University, had been hired to come in and to set up a new department, a new program that was designed to uh, hold the university to the integrity of, of uh, faith and integration of faith into all the curriculum, working with faculty and staff. It was a big challenge, it was a big job, and the president had had recruited me to come, our, the new president at that time, Dr. Carlos Campo, he had recruited me to come and to join his team to do that. And I remember I only had about three months under my belt, and I was still just trying to figure out how to use the re, region email. I mean, I was just still trying to figure out, let's see, where's my office? Would someone just help me, get me from place to place, you know? And uh, I remember getting a call from the president's secretary, and uh, she left me a message and said, uh, Dr. Campo would like to see you in his office tomorrow. Eight o'clock, please, in his office. That's all she said. And I'm thinking, I mean, can you imagine what? Now, maybe you're far more secure than I am. Maybe you're thinking, wow, time for a raise already? I've only been here three months, you know? But me, I'm like, uh-oh. Immediately, I began to have doubts. I began to have doubts about my job security. I began to have doubts about, uh-oh, things aren't going well. I thought I was making good progress, but maybe I'm not. Oh, I'm doing something wrong. He's going to, something bad's going to happen. Have any of you ever had those kind of reactions to things? I mean, sometimes you just, you get a note, you get a text, you get a message. Uh, someone tells you, even someone tells you about someone else. It's not even valid information, and you're just hearing rumors of things, and immediately you begin to question and doubt what you know God has already said. I remember being so nervous. I didn't get much sleep. I was just tossing back and forth and I was, oh, 
What should I do? I was even thinking, let's see, should I go back full-time traveling and I could probably get a few gigs the rest of the year. I was already calculating how I was going to make sure that my needs were met for the balance of the year. And I'm so nervous. And I go into the, the meeting the next morning with Dr. Campo, wait in the office. You know, it's always a big office, the president's office. And I go in, wait, go in, ushered into his office, sit down. And, and it was just the most minuscule thing that you can imagine. He said, I just wanted to tell you what a great job you're doing. Just this one thing I'd like for you to work on for me. It was an assignment. It was a task. There was nothing negative about it. If anything, it was an encouragement. And I walked out thinking, how stupid am I? I have now spent 24 hours in torment, questioning, in doubt, and I knew I was missing out on God's best. Doubt will rob you of God's best. Number two, the second attitude you really have to be careful for is a fearful attitude. A fearful attitude, the Bible tells us in Psalm 27, 1, that well-known scripture that says what? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The idea that the psalmist is saying is what? If the Lord is my light and my salvation, I don't have anything to fear. There's no one I need to fear. Fear should have no basis in my life if God is my light and my salvation. Am I right? The scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 1.7, that well-known scripture that says, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but what? Love, power, and a sound mind. And yet, fear grabs our minds and our attitudes frequently. Did you know the scripture also tells us that fear, in John's epistle it says, fear has Torment. The authorized version uses that. The, the, the King James original version, which is a poor translation of that, says fear has torment. Do you know the word for torment there in 1 John is actually a word that means paralysis. And I've often thought that's maybe one of the best descriptions of fear that I know about is that fear paralyzes. Fear, when you allow fear and fearful attitudes to dominate your thinking, it will immobilize you. Fear will cause you to stop in your tracks, stop making progress. That's exactly what happened to this group of Israelites. The report came back, and it was all about, well, we can't do that. Well, they're, they're this, and they're that, and, and they were afraid. The report from the, the ten that came back was a report of fear. And by the way, fear spreads. It spreads. And fear, just like doubt, fear will undermine faith. And it takes faith to claim your inheritance. But fear, just like doubt, will cause your faith to dissipate. And it will challenge your ability to lay hold of what God has for you. Fear will defeat your faith. It will undermine your destiny. I'll I, I remember in 2011 when God was in the formative stages of showing Carrie and myself about this church and we were arguing and negotiating with him about what start another church no way not at this stage of life not doing it and we were in the middle of negotiating and and I remember the Lord making it very clear to us and in the process of of building the Lord had spoken to me several times reminded me he told me a couple things <clears throat> he said First of all, he assured me that this was his plan, not mine. Have you know that God's plan is better than a good plan? Some of you got good plans and trying to ask God to bless it. It's better just to find out what God's plan is. So he assured me it was God's plan. Number two, you know what he told me? And I'm saying this out loud today for me. 
as much as for you. He said, you'll not have to worry about money. He said, this church is not going to have to worry about money. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to be obedient about money, all right? Doesn't mean we don't need, all right? He was giving me every assurance that money wasn't going to be the giant that was going to stop us. I needed that. During the first two and a half years of this church, we met on Saturday nights. We were building a core of people, and it was an enjoyable experience as far as connecting with a small group of people. And we were close and tight-knit, and, and everybody was doing a whole lot, but we were a happy small group. But there were many times during that that we, well, the entire time, the two and a half years, we'd been searching to find a place we could meet on Sundays. I'm telling you, and I could, there are those here to stand and verify what I'm telling you. Every door was closed. Nothing was available. We knocked on one. We knocked on two. We knocked on three. We checked. We tried numerous different options. We, in fact, this very property we're sitting on, we probably tried four different times and we're told no. The owner said, no way. Not even talk to you as a church. Won't even speak to you. For two and a half years, during that two and a half years, there were many times that fear would rise up and grab my heart. As we were sitting there with sometimes 28 and sometimes 34 and sometimes 40 and sometimes we get as high as 50 people, 55, maybe 60 people on a Saturday night. And I was sitting there thinking, doing a lot, my, you know, a lot just to be ready for it and carry a full time job. It was just a lot going on. And I'm saying, what? in the world am I doing? And fear would rise up and say, you ain't going anywhere. You're going to be stuck right here at the Methodist church on Saturday nights for the next 10 years. Just where you're going to be. It, nothing's going to happen. And I, it, I recognize that those were fear words. And I had to deal with them. But let me tell you something. Fighting fear is a fight. And fear can be aggressive. And I mean, come against you. And the moment it begins to come against you, you find when fear comes in, faith goes out. I say, well, I should be a man of faith about that. God had spoken to me. But the moment fear would come in, I'd, all of a sudden the faith would go out. The moment I would push fear out and reestablish myself on what God had said, faith would return. The same will happen to you with anything that God has given to you to do and part of your inheritance. Number three is a rebellious attitude. You cannot accomplish what God has for you and enjoy his inheritance if you're going to be a rebel. Just to be really blunt. You say, what does this have to do with the story? Because these 10, there were two good reports, and then there were 10 who basically were rebelling against God's best for them. God always has something good. He always has a hope and a future and a good plan. We don't always get to enjoy it. And sometimes the reason is we are in resistance to God's plan. We are fighting God's plan on the inside of us. And it's called a rebellious attitude. A rebellious attitude is an attitude that says, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to do it your way. Rebellion is an attitude. Now, disobedience is an action, but rebellion is an attitude. How many of you have had rebellious kids before? Anybody here? Oh, y'all acting like you got perfect kids at home. Come on. You know what rebellion is? It's that, it's that attitude says, you know what? You know the look? Y'all know the look, right? You know what it does? Did you know that as Christians, we can have rebellious attitudes towards God? 
and God's plan for our life? Rebellion will cause you to miss God's best for your life. I love this passage of scripture. I have it on the screen for you in Isaiah chapter 1. This is what it says. Verse 19 and 20. If you are willing and obedient, you'll eat the best of the land. What is that a picture of? The promised land. Them living there, enjoying it. If what? Willing and obedient. What's the option? What's the other option? However, if you resist and rebel, you're going to be devoured by the sword. I don't know. You know, I think that's pretty clear what choice you ought to make. Don't allow a rebellious attitude to rob you from your inheritance. And number four is a negative attitude. Simply a negative attitude. They had a problem. What was their problem? Giants. They also had a, a past called Egypt. And if you read in the text, it actually says that they started in chapter 14, they started talking more and they said, you know what? Why, why, Moses, why did you even lead us out here? What are we even doing out here at this place? I can't even believe we're here. Well, it would have been better for us to be back in Egypt. Now we got all this stuff going on and, and, and now this just isn't good. And they started murmuring, complaining. They were ready to go back to their past. Listen, God's delivered you from your past. Don't go back to it. A negative attitude will draw you back into to all kinds of issues. A negative attitude, and I'm not just talking about a mental attitude that you conjure up on your own. I believe a positive attitude is a result of a walk of faith. If you take God at his word, you know who he is and what he has said for you. A positive mental attitude is not something that you just say, okay, I think I'm going to be positive today. It has to be something rooted and grounded in something like God's promise as his word, and that's where it comes from. But a negative attitude was prevailing in this story. You may have noticed the times that I emphasized that the report would come back and they'd say, but, but this, but that. And then all, and then finally consummated in verse 33 of chapter 13, they said, we can't do it. Talk about negativity. We can't do it. Those words will keep you from enjoying your inheritance. When you say it can't be done, or you say we've never done it that way before, or whatever you may say that has this negativity built in, it will rob you from God's best. I'll tell you a very quick one-minute story, and then I'll conclude with number five. Uh, the story is told many years ago of Norman Vincent Peale, who was unknown to most people but was pastoring a church in New York City. He had taken a lot of labor and effort to write a book. And during those days, you know, this is how the draft was written. Old time typewriter. Some of you don't know what a typewriter is anymore. But anyway, there was something. It's in the museums today. But anyway, uh, he had written this book. And so the, the draft of the book was about that thick. And he took it and he began to go to publishers. And he began to present the book. And he said, would you consider publishing this? And one after the other after the other would say, no, 
It's not, sorry, we're not looking for it. No, thank you. Not impressed. That's eh, not what we're looking for. So he had seen probably close to 20 publishers and gotten a no and a no and a no. From his place of thinking about this with great faith and being positive, he began to turn negative. Finally, one day after meeting with one last publisher on his list, he returned home to see his wife who was preparing dinner. And he took that draft, that big draft, and he just dropped it into the garbage can. He said, that's it. He dropped it into the garbage can, and his wife said, what are you doing, Norman? He said, that's it. I'm done. This is, must not be right, and it's, it, it, no doors are opening. I'm done. I'm finished with it. And, 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 and she ran over the, to re- get it out of the tr- garbage can. He said, no, 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 don't touch that. Promise me you won't touch that. She said, she felt under great pressure. Okay, I won't touch it. He went on his way. The next morning after he left for work, she went into the kitchen. She literally grabbed the garbage can carefully, not touching the manuscript, being the submissive wife that she was. She took the garbage can with her to another publisher. Can you imagine? Had the publisher reach in, pick it out of the garbage can, and so would you please consider this is a draft for my husband, a book that he'd like to publish. And she said, he said, looked at her kind of strange. I said, all right, lady, I'll get back to you. A couple of weeks came back. Norman Vincent Peale received a, a communication from the publisher and said, we'd love to publish your book. And it became the power of positive thinking. Can you think of something more ironic than that? The power of positive thinking, which is so multiple, multiple millions and millions of copies. And that is a true story. Do you see what negativity will get you? The last attitude I want you to avoid as you're claiming your inheritance is a distorted self-image. Do you remember that as I read to you the text, it said that the negative, the, the negative spies said this. Well, you just don't believe how big those guys are. And they said, we were like grasshoppers. And they also thought we were like grasshoppers. That's just an assumption, by the way. But anyway, this is simply what I call an attitude of a distorted self-image. A distorted self-image is the way you think about yourself. And if the way you view yourself doesn't line up with the truth, it will hold you back and it will keep you from inheriting God's best. It happened to them as they allowed themselves to fall into this trap. They began to think of themselves as inferior. God says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. The Bible says that, that, that there is nothing that can stand against us. The Bible says greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. But when we begin to think of ourselves in a distorted fashion, old tapes begin to play, old mental patterns begin to come, old strongholds begin to pop up. And what that does is simply it binds you and it limits you because it's distorting your image of who you are. And you have to break out of these distortions, Break out of those strongholds of thinking and know that you are what God says you are. And that's what Caleb was saying is we can do this. It's not just because of who we are. It's who's who's with us, whose side we're on. We can do this with God. And this is ours. Therefore, let's go for it. But the prevailing mentality and attitude was a distorted self-image. By the way, something else that contributes to that is when you compare yourself with other people. 
When you start comparing yourself with other people, say, well, they can do this and I can't do this. Listen, you just focus on what God says about you. You let God renew your mind and your own image of yourself, and you'll find yourself beginning to enter in and taking what the land is that God has promised for you. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning? God wants us all to enjoy our inheritance. How many of you would admit with me I'm the first one to say there are things that I know that God has blessed me with and promised me and part of my inheritance that I have yet to enjoy and possess? Would you raise your hand? That's me. And I recognize that sometimes it's those very five attitudes that keep me from enjoying that inheritance. Can we just pray over that right now? As our heads are bowed, maybe there's one of those that you identify with and you just want to just think, focus on right now as I pray for you. Father, as our prayer teams come forward to receive those who, who need special ministry, Father, I pray for each of us, particularly those of us who've identified barriers and, and obstacles to us overcoming the giants of life, those things that would prevent us from enjoying our full inheritance. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray that you would enlighten us and empower us, that we would overcome every giant Lord, we repent of these attitudes. We ask, Lord, that you deliver us from fears and doubts. Deliver us from negativity. Lord, I pray that instead of being a we can't people, we'd be a we can people. Lord, cause us to be the people of God that rise to enjoy our inheritance. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.